to feel a man's body pressed against me was the most validating experience of my life up until that point. Andres Odorica, this is your mixtape. Why don't we call it I Want That Freedom? Hello, listeners. Happy Pride Month, and welcome to This Is Your Mixtape, a podcast where every episode we take a close look at someone's life as told through five songs. I'm your host, Michael Collins, and I am Meet That Thinks. Before we begin today's show, I'll take 17 seconds to remind you that Megaphonic, the network we call home, has a Patreon, and for as little as $2 a month, you can help support the production of this show and others, hear bonus content, and access a members-only lounge on Slack. Check out patreon.com slash megaphonic to learn more. On with the show. Today, we're chatting with Andres Odorica. Andres Odorica is a queer Latinx writer and educator based in Edinburgh, Scotland. As a writer, he aspires to create liminal worlds filled with characters who are from neither here nor there, ni de aquí ni de allá. And as our conversation will reveal, this reflects his own lived experiences. His work has been published by Confluence Medway, The Asentos Review, 401 Inc., The Color of Madness, The Skinny, and Bella Caledonia. His writing often addresses mental health, loss, sexuality, and living in a liminal state. Andres and I have a great chat about growing up as the other, the difficulties of wrestling with your own identity, long-distance relationships, finding liberation in a double-wide trailer outside of Ithaca, and what happens when your mom finds gay porn on the family computer. I hope you'll enjoy. Welcome to the show, Andres. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to be here. So for listeners who might not be very familiar with you and what you do, you're living in Glasgow. Um, how do you spend your time? Edinburgh. Edinburgh. Oh, my God. Yes. Oh, you're <laughs> going to start World War Three. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, have, I have such a, a, a main line into like queer writers in Glasgow. I just went on autopilot. I know. And it's so funny because I'm friends with a few of the people that you've interviewed. And it's such a, a contention on uh, which of the big cities you live in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my outsider perspective is that Okay, Glasgow is like a little bit more sort of down to earth and Edinburgh is a little bit more fancy. Is that right or wrong? Totally. I would okay. say Glasgow is probably um, the heart and soul of Scotland. And mm-hmm. then Edinburgh is probably how people perceive Scotland to be. But mm-hmm. I think at times it might be a bit disingenuous. How do, how do you mean? I like living in Edinburgh, but I think it it comes off as quite refined. And Mm. I think Scotland is a lot heartier. You know, my partner's from Aberdeen. So that's the third biggest city in Scotland. And even Aberdeen compared to Glasgow seems, I think, even more hearty. I think the cool people live in Glasgow. And then those of us who want to be cool, we're, we're our own little community within Edinburgh because it's pretty posh. People who are listening might think that you don't sound particularly Scottish. That would be a really good uh, assumption on their part and totally true. I am American. Uh, I would define myself as Mexican-American. Um, but I am an American who has spent very little of his life in the United States. My father was in the military, uh, in the Air Force, up until I was about 23. Um, So I've spent 
probably a bit over 75% of my life outside of the US. Wow. How many countries have you lived in? I have lived in England, Germany, Turkey, and I went to high school in Japan. Wow. <laughs> yes. So a childhood like that, it's going to be atypical. And why don't we use that as an entry point into talking about your first song? Uh, what do we have? So my first song is Bidi Bidi Bom Bom by Selena. was a Tejano singer. She was Mexican-American like me. For probably uh, most Americans, and I would even broadly say maybe North uh, Americans to include Canada, people would be fairly familiar uh, with who Selena is. But for those who don't know, she was the first uh, Latina singer to get a number one album on the Billboard 200. And unfortunately, she was murdered when she was 23 uh, but that is none of this is why i chose the song <laughs> growing up being mexican-american and then living overseas it was really interesting because with americans who i lived with on military bases they understood what it was to be from you know i was mexican-american mm -hmm. in, in america uh, Latino, the Latino population, I think, is somewhere around 23 to 25% of the population currently. But growing up, I didn't really have much of my culture represented. And mm. so it was through music that I really was able to connect. I think the song for me is really, it reminds me a lot of my childhood with my sister. I'm one of four, but me and my sister are quite close in age. She's mm. two years younger than me. Um, and I just have these very distinct memories of my parents putting on different Selena albums when we were uh, growing up. And it would usually be on a Saturday. Mm -hmm. And if we woke up and these songs were playing, uh, it was an indication that we needed to get up and that we would be cleaning all morning. Uh, and it's funny now that I'm older and I've connected, especially through things like Twitter with other um, Latino writers, this is something that is very common, uh, the use of music uh, and certain artists as a way of telling children, no, you will be staying in this morning and we will be cleaning the house. For no one in particular, it was more ritual uh, mm -hmm. than anything else. Growing up, because my life was so nomadic, we were, you know, we moved between every two and four years and it would be like starting school all over again, making yeah. new friends. But I always had my sister as like a guaranteed friend. Mm -hmm. And our relationship, I think, in a lot of ways, was tied to music. Um, you know, we used to do like our own talent shows in in her bedroom, and we would, you know, steal my dad's copy of like a Selena album uh, and put it in like her little radio, and we would just sing and dance, and it was very freeing. 
And yeah, I think it's just like a happy reminder of my childhood, just that freedom. And it's weird, especially like being older now and, and being out and gay. I think Selena, for lots of young gay Latinos, she was probably our first pop diva, you yes. know? And maybe mm-hmm. we did it, you know, I didn't know at the time that I was gay. But there was something about her. She, you know, she took a lot of her reference points from people like Madonna and Janet Jackson. And Mm -hmm. she's known, you know, for wearing like her bustier and she made all her own costumes. And they're really at times garish and super camp. (laughs) You know, I was thinking uh, a few weeks ago when um, the Met Ball was going on, I was like, if Selena was alive, she would have adhered to that costume brief to a T because she was camp and there was something about her, but like even, you know, within the Latino culture, it's very ruled. Men are ruled by machismo, but there's some like people, even men would listen to her and dance to her. And it was just like, she was almost like a safe space. Like, you know, if your little son was dancing to Selena, well, that didn't matter. You know, if it was an other artist, maybe it did. And maybe there would be shame in that. But like, she was freeing in a way. And maybe in a lot of ways, that's because she died so young. So it was almost like um, this idolization of, of this female singer who was taken so young. In these memories of me and my sister, I was probably anywhere between seven and eight. So my sister would have been like five or six and we're dancing to her music. But a lot of her songs are about like terrible breakups or like this like forbidden love that's like frowned upon by the community. It's just, it's funny how those sorts of lyrics kind of completely went over my head and it was really the beat of the music. And that is what was freeing. As a kid, I didn't understand what she meant when she was singing things like Amor Prohibido. But when I look at the lyrics now, I'm re- I realize like, oh no, she's talking about like, she wasn't allowed to be in love with the person she was in love with and her parents didn't like him. And there was this idea of the shame, what the community would think of them together. But like as a seven-year-old kid, I was like, oh, I just love Selena and she's wearing sparkly bras and like cowhide leggings. So like you didn't know you were gay at the time. And I never make that assumption because some people say that they knew when they were like five. Um, But other people, it takes a bit longer to figure it out. And what you just described is like so congruent with like the experience of being gay, particularly in a repressive culture where like, oh, it's a forbidden love and you're not allowed to and the shame from the community. So that just dovetails so nicely with the experience of growing up gay. Do you think it was just sort of a happy accident? I think at some level, I had to have known something, you know, Mm -hmm. because I can distinctly remember there was no attraction, even at like eight, you know, like I think there are straight little boys and little girls who know like, oh, I like Justin Bieber and I think he's hot. I had none of that. It was more like there was a camaraderie. There was it's almost like this knowingness without knowing and I think because like you said you know I don't want to lambast my own culture but I do think especially being a part of sort of an ethnic minority there can be this repressiveness and maybe I don't know it's a leftover of like colonialism Mm -hmm. I didn't have all of the puzzle pieces there to work out maybe as quickly but there was something about her and her music that felt safe There's more to being gay or being queer or whatever 
term you'd wish to use than just the sort of sexual attraction. Yeah, totally. You can be like seven and like, it's not like I have crushes on boys, but it's like, there's something different. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. To have that representation, because again, yeah, like I think that, and this is sort of like a scary argument that was something people used, you know, 20 years ago. And I think especially right now in Scotland is something that's currently coming back. This idea of like gayness or queerness as like sexual in a perverse way. And it's like, no, there are so many other aspects of it. And and sexuality doesn't need to be seen as perverse anyway. One, that's stupid. But two, me being queer, me being gay is not just the act of sex. It's how I respond to the world. It's how I... I inhabit spaces. And, you know, I think if I was given more forms of representation at a younger age, I might have learned how to live within my space a lot happier and a lot freer. And I wouldn't have had to use things like uh, dancing along to like bitty bitty bomb bomb to to feel, you know, elation or joy. So you've described to us your childhood um, moving around between a bunch of different bases yes. and different countries. And um, was it important to your parents to carry some of this home culture with them where they went? So even if you were in Turkey or England or whatever, um, the home space could have some of this Mexican-American culture for, for their children, for you and your siblings to sort of experience. Oh, yeah. Like, I mean, not even just have it. Like, at times, I think my parents forced it on us. <laughs> so growing up, my mom forced me to do the Vaila uh, Folklorico, which uh, translates from Spanish to folklore dance. But in specifically in Mexico, each state within Mexico has their own form of Vaila Folklorico. Um, and so in America, between September and October is Hispanic Heritage Month. My mom used to force me to do... Uh, these dances in front of like my entire school. Oh, wow. Which was really like at times embarrassing because I used to have to do the Mexican hat dance. So in, it's called um, El Jarabe Tapatio, but everyone knows it as the Mexican hat dance. And most people have probably seen some image of it. So the man wears the sombrero and the female wears a really beautiful skirt and they just dance in a circle. And at the end, the man, or at the time, um, a very uh, nervous 10-year-old Andres would have to go down on bended knee. And my dance partner, I remember her, like, I can remember it all. I remember her name was Adriana Cacho. And we did not like each other. Uh, (laughs) And so so to be forced to do this dance was awkward. But anyway, at the end of it, I would have to get down on bended knee. And Adriana would have to put her, like, rest her heel on my my knee. And so this goes back to, like, the 1800s in colonial Mexico. And the whole point of the dance was it was a courtship dance. And so if the woman liked the man at the end of the dance, uh, he would do this. And if she put her foot on his knee, it would be an indication that they would then begin to date and eventually get married. And so I think I appreciate what my mom was trying to do. I think at the time it was very embarrassing and maybe a bit confusing uh, for someone who did not know he was gay, but knew he didn't like dancing with at least Adriana Cacho or, you know, (laughs) girls in general. But yeah, I think, you know, through food, through music, um, in a lot of ways through, you know, we were Catholic growing up, or I mean, my parents are still Catholic. I don't know what I identify as anymore. (laughs) But um, 
We, yeah, it was always there. I think they tried really hard. And for me, that's really important because as a writer, a lot of what I write about is the idea of identity. So whether it's my queerness or um, being a Mexican-American or being an immigrant, trying to write towards that experience of being the other or or this liminal experience of being between two things. So I was Mexican-American, but I didn't grow up in America and I didn't grow up around other Mexicans. So it was always, you know, between this threshold. And I think it's really shaped who I ended up being. Yes. Do you feel ready to move on to your next song? I do. Okay, great. What do we have next? From Happy Camp uh, Latina Pop Stars, we move to Death Cab for Cuties, Brothers on a Hotel Bed. You may tire of me This our December sun is setting Cause I'm not who I used to be No longer easy on the eyes Quite the switch. <laughs> it is. So <laughs> Death Cab for Cutie are one of my favorite bands. I think when listeners look at my play uh, list, it will come off as very erratic. But Death Cab for Cutie probably speaks most direct to what is the kind of music that I like to listen to. Mm-hmm. I discovered them in the most uncool way possible. Please tell. I was 15 and they were playing in the background on an episode like they were actually as a band in the background of an episode of the oc so i think like the main characters are at some cool house party so like they're all millionaires living i think in what uh malibu or something and someone is able to afford death cab for cutie to come to their house party so anyway i remember like hearing them play um I don't remember what song, but it was off transatlanticism. And there was something about the way Ben Gibbard was singing that I just found really alluring. I was going home for the summer uh, from, I was living in Japan and I was going home for the summer uh, to visit my family in California. And I ended up at some record shop and I bought all the Death Cab for Cutie albums they had. And I think at that point, transatlanticism was like the first major record album that they put out but they had a few other uh like more low-key indie releases Mm -hmm. and i just fell in love with the lyricism of their music and the sadness in in his voice and the reason i chose this song in particular is it is it is probably a marker in my life for the first time I was confronted with the very uh, clear reality that I was gay. (laughs) And it's in not the greatest way possible, but I have come to terms with it, so I'm willing to share. So in a very embarrassing turn of events, my mom found on the family computer that I had been searching gay porn. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, my God. Every 15-year-old gay boy's nightmare. Yeah, and it was nightmarish. And the thing is, like, I think it's, like, it was really, like, not, like, overly, 
Uh, you weren't like watching fisting videos or whatever. <laughs> no, no, not at all. It was like it's some website that is no longer up. Like mm-hmm. many um, setups where I think it was just like desperate college boys who wanted to make money, like wanking themselves off. But anyway, so my mother discovers this, and I remember this day so distinctly because I was going with t- uh, three of my friends ice skating to an indoor ice skating rink and it was kind of like a double date um and it was with a girl and my mom pulls me aside and i don't i like my dad might have not been in the house at the time and my sister might not have been around so she straight up just asks me about it and i remember i made up some lie about um because i had a lot of uh like straight guy friends back then. I mean, mm-hmm. I was not gay. I was straight at the time or assumably I thought it was. But anyway, I blamed it. I remember on two of my guy friends and I said like it was a dare or something stupid. I don't know. And I think my mom being as Catholic as she was, she just wanted to believe it. So we kind of just put that conversation on mute. And I remember going on this pseudo double date with my best friend boxer and my other best friend Megan and her friend Anna and I just remember like how do I explain this it's almost like you're watching your own life but you're not there like maybe it was my first existential crisis I didn't even know anything like about like search history or anything like that. So to have been caught one, I just felt really stupid, Mm. but two to be confronted because I think growing up, like in middle school at times, life wasn't so great. And like, you know, people called me all the names that you call someone who you think might be gay, but like, I kind of was always able to brush it off, but having my mom ask about it, was like this really jarring experience because it kind of made it impossible to not think about it. Right. I chose the song because it was off the album's plans, which came out the year that this happened, which was my junior year of high school. I think the lyrics in a lot of ways speak to sort of a sadness and confusion that I went through through this this confrontation not with my mom but with myself like to have to finally confront that like why was i looking at this porn why did i find my best friend alex attractive why did i like when i only got to hang out with him and not in a group you know it was starting to like unravel very quickly Mm -hmm. so i remember like i like played this album for three months straight um i had my own uh, stereo in my room. <laughs> I would listen to the album every day before going to school. And I think it was like almost making myself enter this morose feeling on purpose. Um, but I think it was a way of getting through it. And so I like I spent the rest of high school not dealing with being gay, but it was always at the back of my mind. And it was really through this embarrassing um discovery (laughs) by my mom of my gay porn searches that started these conversations these internal conversations for myself that i probably wasn't straight and i would go on to wait a quite a while before i said i 
like before I would come out. But I think it really laid the groundwork. And so I like the lyrics of this song. It, it like Ben Gibbard ends up like ends it by saying, you know, my December sun has set. And there's something really profound about that, almost like the seasonal change in my life, you know, like there was no going back, like fall, autumn is over, we're going to go through a sad wintry period. And then spring is like metaphorically, I think would have been the next three years that it would take for me to then come out. But this kind of male sadness <laughs> that really defines Death Cab for Cutie songs was in a lot of ways really helpful for me because I didn't have the language, you know, like what I was speaking about earlier for why I like Selena. I didn't have the language to figure it all out. All I knew was, okay, I kind of found that arousing when I watched these like sad college boys trying to make money by like going shirtless in their underwear. Um, And I kind of liked, you know, my best friend Alex and I thought he was attractive and, you know, there were like high school jocks that like in the classic, you know, American high school sense are the hot ones. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I found myself attracted to them as well, but I didn't equate that attraction to anything else. And maybe a lot of it too was growing up Catholic. I was so repressed. Yeah. I was trying to push everything down. Again, music in a lot of ways was helping me to unpack stuff, um, to to think through language and words and metaphor. And again, at this time too, it started. Re- I, I started to really get into writing. I got my own um, column in my high school newspaper called "The Monologues of Life," um, and I would write about stuff. And it's so funny because my husband and I um, last Christmas we were back. Uh, in my parents' house in Texas, I had saved all of my uh, high school uh, articles, uh, all, all of the actual newspapers. And I think it was more of like this sense that like, I hope one day I am a super famous writer and I needed to have this whole archive for a museum to do something <laughs> about me. But I started reading these opinion pieces that I would write. And it's so obvious that I was gay. It's the funniest thing. As a writer and as a queer writer, it's really a brilliant have kind of that archival material. Because again, I didn't 100% know at the time, but I can do, you know, I went through university, I know how to do queer reading and apply queer theory. And I can read those articles and be like, oh my God, Andres, you were so freaking gay. Like, It's really funny how we tell on ourselves. <laughs> yeah, it, it, but it's brilliant and it's nice because as hard as that time of my life was, it mm-hmm. was nice to know on some level I understood who I was. I didn't understand myself completely, but I was laying the groundwork. I was using language. I was using lyrics. I was using, you know, the emotion that I got from, you know, playing uh, Death Cab for Cutie on repeat. Yes. I, I understood myself in some way. And I think that's how I survived that period of my life. And this makes me think about your mother sort of putting that to one side because she wanted to believe that it was the truth, the lie that you told her, which was if I know, I've heard lots of variations of the story. Your lie was probably pretty flimsy. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. Yeah. But like, it's the, it's what you want to believe, so you will. And so like, there are so many different layers of understanding in a person. And a person can realize something at some level, but not consciously want to realize it. And so that'll just live inside them without them being aware of it on the topmost level. But it's still there, you know? <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, I totally agree. And I think in a lot of ways, I didn't want to believe it because of the other interests or in-groups that I was in, you know, like mm-hmm. I was really a part of like my community youth group. Um, I taught Sunday school with my mom. <laughs> I think there was a lot of dogmatic influence in my life. Yes. And and my parents, you know, never said like, oh, homosexuality is a sin or, you know, like, uh, don't be gay. But I think there was wider discourse in 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 those areas. Just absorb it from society, you know. Exactly. I, it just it made it perfect for me to not want to confront it in a really direct way. As terrible as it sounds, I think at that time in my life, I did not want to be gay. I did not want it to be a thing. So I believed the story that I was telling myself at the time. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's the word. It's a story, right? Like, there are these sort of narratives that we have for ourselves. And there are also these narratives that exist in culture more widely, (laughs) especially when you're a teenager, and you're trying to figure things out. It doesn't, you don't quite realize that the stories, like, you can pick and choose, you can make your own story, write your own story. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think when there are people who, who make you know, I think you need secondary characters to buy into that story. And people like my mom, she wanted it to be true. So, so made it work. And, you know, she'd ask about girls, you know, and this was like maybe 15 years ago. And to think that's not that long ago, gay rights wasn't really a thing in the US at the time or the UK. Like, you know, I think some states at that point in my life uh, might have had civil partnerships. But like, so, and my dad was, like I said, was in the Air Force. So, you know, it was prime, don't ask, don't tell. Like that still was an active thing. So I think in a lot of ways, you know, my mom and my, my mom would have wanted it to be true that I was straight, probably more so because she knew in some way that if I was gay, my life was going to be harder, especially at that time in my life, because there wasn't references about happy gay couples or marriage um, or, or just that, you know, you could have a job and say you're gay and not get fired, you know? So it was the narrative that we wanted to tell ourselves for different reasons. Yeah. It just makes me think of my own mother. When I came up to her, she was very sad. And I think that was why, because to her gay meant AIDS, gay meant like not having a job, yeah. meant getting beat up in the streets. And these are things that happen, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I think if that is your, if those are your reference points, again, like we were speaking about earlier, it's this idea of representation. And if what society is representing to you is this sad version or this hard version, I get where that was coming from for my mom because it was a form of love. And if you love your child, you don't want life to be hard on them. And if, especially as gay men, if what you're seeing is this dark path of loneliness living on the margins you know scary like and and the scaremongering about aids and hiv why like why would you be like oh yeah i totally want to have a gay son like that would just be fabulous i think we're making progress to disrupt those narratives but i think we need to even work harder if i can hope for anything in the future it would be that what happened to me that awkward Sunday where I was about to go on a weird double date that it just never got talked about 
you know, that my mom would have been able to just say, you know what? He's 16, 16 year olds look at porn and it doesn't matter what kind of porn he was looking at. Just move on. At the heart of that, that confrontation was because what she saw to her was shocking. It was men I was looking at. Cause for worry. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about the song. Like everything you've given me has been wonderful. And thank you very much for sharing. So the song obviously also has, well, I mean, it's obvious to me, kind of homoerotic themes, but homoerotic is almost the wrong word because when I look at the song and I read the lyrics and everything, it's it's like a relationship between two men where the eroticism has kind of died. Yes. But they're still together. Yes. You know, it's funny. So junior year, when this happened, difficult. Senior year actually ended up becoming a really amazing part of my teenage life. And it was because I was best friends with this guy who I'm no longer friends with. So I'll just call, let's just call him Jay. Okay. So Jay had just moved from America to uh, Japan, uh, to my high school. Uh, He was like six foot tall. He was Samoan. He was the most attractive person who I had seen up until that point of my life. Mm -hmm. And we immediately became friends. He was such a feature of my senior year. And we would do things on our own. Uh, Like we'd go to the gym and stuff. We, like we became inseparable. But towards the end of senior year, um, he started like, uh, I guess seeing this guy who we also went to high school with. Um, and this was all totally like on the down low. Mm-hmm. And I remember there was this other guy who found out about it and who started blackmailing um, my best friend. It just turned into like this really ugly blimp in what was actually a wonderful senior year of high school. It was it really altered sort of my relationship with Jay again after what happened in junior year. I was still, I really repressed what was very obvious that I was gay, but I knew I liked Jay more than a friend, if that makes sense. But when I found out that he had been messing around with another guy and like experimenting and kind of coming to terms with like, oh, he might also be gay as well. Part of like our relationship almost and friendship felt like it died because it wasn't me. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? It was someone else like this secondary character came out of nowhere and he chose him to explore those feelings. And it's, it's funny because like you said, those lyrics, it's like a relationship that is a, a, it's very homoerotic and it's these two men and this relationship they have now found themselves. It's not like sexual anymore or love. They're like brothers. It's like brothers who are on this family trip and the parents have only paid for one room with two double beds. And so the two brothers are and and, like this platonicness. And I think for me, that relationship with my friend Jay, the possibility of it ever being romantic was killed the moment he came to terms with his sexuality, if this makes sense, because it was now real. But I was still repressed, but he chose someone else. So in my head, these fantasies that I kept really repressed and hidden, there was no possibility anymore. And I think that is 
you know, also another reason why I really liked the song and I carried it for so long because it really spoke to my different relationships with male friends. That song in particular, there's just something really gay going on underneath, but in a really sad way. And for that time in my life where I discovered the song, that was what I was experiencing. You know, my my affinity for other male friends of mine, there was a sadness to it because I knew it would never happen, at least at that point in my life. Yes. It's sad, but it's also safe because yes. it doesn't have to become real. You don't have to do anything about it. Yeah, because yeah. we'll always have to fall back into that pattern of like, actually, we're just friends. I will never get to go to prom with you. I will never get to be the homecoming king and you're the homecoming king and we get to dance. You know, that's happening nowadays. Society is moving. And I think that's awesome. That wasn't where life was at when I was 16, 17. These, uh, these strong electric feelings that I that I had for male friends but had to repress yeah they were always safe because i i would never have to admit admit anything outright because there was no possibility like it was never going to happen yeah i guess sad and safe is the condition of the closet (laughs) yeah it is it is no it's true do you feel ready to move to your next song i do we have single ladies by beyonce but specifically it is the red top remix i need no permission did i mention don't pay him Let's fast forward three years. I'm now a second year in university. I went to school in upstate New York. Mm-hmm. I came out at the start of my uh, my sophomore year of college um, in a really weird way. I uh, I was in a parking lot with my friend Anna Maria, and we were. She was telling me about this guy she went to high school with that she liked, and I remember I used my friend Jay as my in to finally telling someone that I was gay. And I remember saying to Anna Maria, I was like, Anna Maria, you know how you were telling me about Nick? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, I think Jay might've been the Nick of my life. And then I was so awkward. I said goodbye to her and I ran back to my dorm. (laughs) And I I'm sorry for laughing. (laughs) I know it's funny because it's like, of course, like I just, I, it's totally befitting of me if if you were to meet me in real life. So I go back to my dorm, immediately get on Facebook Messenger and just start apologizing to Anna Maria. And I'm like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. That was really awkward. I'm, um, and she was just so nice about it. And like, oh, she was really progressive and super liberal. And she was like, oh my God, this is freaking amazing. Like, you know, I'm, I feel so honored that you would share that with me. And don't worry, like, take your time. Like, this will only live with me, like, until you're ready. Well, that's, that's great. <laughs> it was, it was such a, uh, like, because literally she was the first person I told. But I would go on to spend my entire first year of or almost entire first year of being out of the closet, doing nothing about it. Um, I was so uh, passive in my own life. Um, I started telling people and I identified as gay and I made friends with lots of queer people, but I did not do anything sexually. I did not date people. 
I was living in a liminal state. I wasn't ready to go over fully into that threshold. At the end of my second year of university, my girlfriends decided to take me out dancing to the one and only gay club in Ithaca, New York, which is, I am not joking, on the outskirts of town in what is um, a double wide. Um, yeah, yeah, I, I, I shit you not like, and like, is it like the, what's funny is Ithaca ranks really high for being gay friendly and specifically lesbian friendly. Um, Mm -hmm. but like, it seems like such a terrible metaphor to have the only gay club on the outskirts of town in what is like basically a temporary home. So we were there. I was coming towards the end of my second year. Like I had really allowed myself to live with the idea of being gay. But again, I hadn't done anything with anyone. We're there, we're dancing. There's this really attractive post-grad student from Cornell University. So I would have been, what, 19? And my girlfriends would have been between 19 and 20. This guy must have been 24, 25. So at the time of being 19, like, that's a huge difference. Like, a 25-year-old seems like a man, and you seem like a little boy in comparison. I just, I had not registered that he was looking at me or into me in any way. Because again, I, I even at that time, I was still really, I think, repressed. I, I was so scared of acting on being gay beyond just telling people. But my girlfriends, I think, were just tired at that point because it was almost <laughs> a year. And they were like, come on, Andres, you've got to do something. So they literally pushed me towards him. And I danced with him and it was actually like, it's so weird to say it, but it's like the first contact I had with another man. Yes. And I can only describe it as like electrifying, like Mm -hmm. the warmth of another man's body. And you have to understand, like I was 19. I had just all this trauma and this Catholic guilt that had just really kept me from participating in my own life. To feel a man's body pressed against me was the most validating experience of my life up until that point. The thing is, I still was not ready to do anything beyond dancing. And like, bless this guy, like who I like was really attractive. Like I thought, oh my God, way above me, like my league. He wanted like to make out and I was not ready. Like, so (laughs) to continue my awkward energy... I kind of like sidled away and did like a really dorky shoulder dance back to my girlfriend. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry. No, it's like, you can laugh. It's a great visual. Yeah. Like just imagine the most awkward 19 year old gay man you can imagine. And that was Mm -hmm. me in that moment. And I like, I had ruined a perfect thing because this guy was hot. He was a post-grad student. He was probably studying to be a doctor, like could have had it made. So I go back to my, um, to my girlfriends, having interacted in a pseudo-sexual sense for the first time with a man. And single ladies, but the remix comes on. And it was just this brilliant moment because, like, it might have been, like, nine of my girlfriends who came to this gay club with me were just cheering me on because everyone knew my story. Everyone knew that I had been out but so slow-moving in my willingness to um to interact with men and i just remember it's so funny because the lyrics have nothing to like make no sense like this guy was not trying to like date me and like we were together for years and he never put a ring on it 
But there was this just brilliant campy queerness in that moment with my my female friends, my allies, who understood for like a 19-year-old who had spent so much of his life afraid of being gay. Like that was a big moment. It was bigger than having sex or like giving a blowjob or like, you know, it was it was revolutionary for me. That's such a good story that you told me. I think most of us, certainly like nowadays it might be different, but gay men who are a little bit older, like you were doing something that most straight people do at their like grade six dance or whatever. Yes. You were just having a close dance, like just pressing your body against another body and then running back to your friends, teehee. But like when that's been pent up for like five, six, seven years without release, it's so unbelievably thrilling when it finally happens. (laughs) (laughs) That is a really important message to get across, especially to straight people. Like these seemingly boring um, anecdotes from life are so important when you feel like you have had to repress yourself in any way and like code switch so your sexuality or your class or your race or your ethnicity if there are things that society doesn't allow you to do in a safe and comfortable way and you have to experience it sort of 10 steps behind everyone else like those moments the value in them is so important. At the end of the day, it's what like millions of people at middle school dances do all the time. But because it was with the the type of person that I was actually attracted to, that was why it was so important because I didn't get to do that in middle school. I may have not 100% known that I was gay, but I knew enough that I wasn't attracted to women. So like I did not have sex with anyone in high school. Like it may be a terrible phrase, but like I was a gold star gay. (laughs) I think it wasn't because like I was afraid. It was almost like I didn't want to do that to someone else because I knew I didn't have that sincere emotion for them. Right. To finally be able to like at 19 to to dance with a man and then you know like i said it all happened very quickly so to kiss sex all of that well the damn burst at that point (laughs) yes exactly it was like so much repression everything came out finally i was at a point in my life where i got to be active in my life i wasn't watching other people and having to listen to lyrics and think like oh when selena's think, uh, singing about this prohibited love like or or this man you know she wants or i got to be the person in the song like actively the person in the song i was experiencing things i wasn't just waiting on the sidelines anymore. So I basically want to know what you studied in university. So in university, I did a double major. Um, I double majored in English Lit and Drama uh, with a concentration in playwriting. Um, And that was really the genesis of my love of writing. And I had really amazing English professors who really helped me like quickly educate myself on the types of writers that I was interested in or that I would then go on to sort of align myself with stylistically. So I started finally reading uh, books by openly queer writers or, you know, I took a really amazing multicultural American lit course and started reading 
writers of color beyond the ones that had already been accepted in the canon, you know, like Toni Morrison or Maya Angelou. I I started to expand my horizons. Theater, I was really lucky. My playwriting professor was like just the most bonker hippie ever. So the types of stuff he introduced us in was really experimental. And for someone who had grown up so dogmatically Catholic and so living within like these very clear black and white uh, lines, what is expected of oneself, it was such an amazing period of my life because my writing just became super radical because I realized the things that meant the most to me, these ideas of representation that I wanted to to speak to were the things that I would have loved when I was younger, but I didn't. So, so at the same time that I had come out and I was learning about what it meant to be gay, I was also learning what kind of writer I wanted to be. I was really lucky in university. I was uh, able to do um, a training, like a weekend workshop. I was flown into New York City uh, to work with Moises Kaufman's Tectonic Theater Project. So they're the theater company that devised the Laramie Project. And this is will go on to be one of the best experiences of my life. It was a work intensive workshop with exclusively queer people of color. So I had grown up not knowing many queer people. And then finally I was given this experience of not just queer people, but queer people who were also people of color like me. And 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 you know, it was my first experience, I guess, of intersectionality. And it was be, being around these creatives who who were so proud of being queer was just so life affirming because I was still figuring stuff out. And to be with people who knew where their queerness sat in relation to their cultural uh identity or where their cultural identity uh, stood in relation to their queerness. It was just so brilliant because it was a point where I was given more language, more language to understand myself in a way I wasn't allowed to when I was younger. Does this seem like a good point to move on to our next song? Yes. So I feel like with every song that I have been um, sharing, we're jumping in years. So this is about, gosh, four or five years after uh, after my last song. So I have chosen Latch by Disclosure featuring Sam Smith. And this song is, uh, I guess, yeah, it's dedicated to my husband, but it's funny because it won't be an obvious choice. But so I met my husband when we were in grad school in London. Uh, He is Scottish from Aberdeen. So he had moved down to London to do an MA in history, and I had moved to London to do a playwriting master's. We met towards the end of our, uh, of our, 
master's programs uh, right before we started our dissertations. We fell in love. And then six months later, um, the UK government kicked me out. Uh, my visa was up. And so we had to do long distance. Uh, so it was funny because when we were doing long distance, we tried to come up with really creative ways of staying connected. So, you know, we would speak every day and Skype and call each other and we wrote letters to each other uh, every week. But what we also did was my husband would make me mixtapes and I would burn these playlists onto CDs and play them in my car because I didn't have like Spotify at the time. So I was living in Texas and working for a nonprofit uh, uh, as a creative writing instructor. Uh, in the inner city of San Antonio. So I used to have like this hour long commute and I would play these songs uh, that were really popular at the time in London at clubs. Um, and, you know, when my husband and I first met and we were dating, we used to go out dancing a lot with our friends to different, you know, big, small clubs around London. So when I left, he started uh, a PhD. Uh, still in London. So the clubbing sort of stopped happening, but he would listen to uh, Annie Mac on BBC Radio 1 on Fridays. And so he would share lots of the songs that were becoming really big in London. And it was a really neat way for me to feel connected to the city that I had a deep affinity for, that I met my, at the time, boyfriend in. I remember that Latch was one of the songs that he shared. I remember when I first heard it, you know, I don't rate Sam Smith that highly. Like, I think he has a good voice, but he's not like one of my favorite singers. But in this song, it is probably the sexiest that he has, like, he's, that he sings. Like, it is a sexy, loving song. The lyrics, I think, really just were so evocative when doing long distance so like he sings you know now i got you in my space i won't let go of you got you shackled in my embrace i'm latching on to you and it was like what we were trying to actively do my husband like kevin was like the first person i like i was in love with like and i can say that wholeheartedly and i think he has said that too like you know we dated lots of people and 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 he was out a lot earlier than I was, we're the same age. Like for him, his coming out experience was very like, oh, well, I'm gay. Whereas I think mine was a lot more trauma filled and repressed. But it was interesting that it wasn't until we met each other that we fell in love. So it's like, like this song about latching onto someone like through terrible, stupid bureaucratic circumstances of, of my visa ending. And I just happened to meet this person who wasn't even from London like me and we fell in love. It was like trying to latch on to each other. And whenever I would hear the song or I would play the song or if I would go out to a nightclub or that, you know, we were doing long distance. So I would go and visit him and when I would see him in London. It just is such this beautiful reminder of, of like something we overcame. Like we overcame the distance. We made it work. And in a weird way, music was one of the things we used to stay connected, you know, like these playlists of these bands or DJs who weren't at the time big in the States or hadn't broken in the States. It kept me connected to that city. It kept me connected to our friendship group. It kept me connected to those nights out. But ultimately, it kept me connected to him. Yeah, I just like, I love listening to the song and I'll, like it'll be random like every few months but when it comes on 
I always remember that period of my life. And though it was difficult to do the long distance because we did it for almost two years, that's such a positive memory. And maybe I'm totally misremembering it and not remembering the hardships. But like, I just have such happy memories of like, I would feel so defeated. I'd get stuck in an hour, like a uh, car jam, you know, on like the I-35. And like it was a six hour time difference. So, you know, like by the time I left work and Kevin was fully in his PhD, he'd be going to bed. But I had him there because I had these songs and I would play these songs and it got me through not just the drive, but like that time in my life. During this period, I mean, you can probably look back at it with uh, happy memories because it ended nicely. Yes. (laughs) But um, so... You were apart for almost two years, uh, and you were just saying that you weren't sure during the two years how it was going to end or whatnot. The goal you were working towards, were you trying to get back to the UK? Was that no, the plan? No, not at all. Um, I think we were trying to get to a point where we knew what to do next. So I think we were between two worlds, you know, get married and I will move back there or Kevin would have found an opportunity stateside at a university and gone sort of the academic teaching route. Which is a very unsure path. Yeah, both of them. Yeah, it was the natural evolution of a relationship. You know, it took us almost, uh, well, it took us a year and a half before. So, and then we got engaged. And so it was still a half of like six more months before then I, I relocated back to London. But yeah, it was not like the end goal in any way, but I think it was... It was just, it sounds so cheesy, but like when you know, you know, and we knew. And so we knew we had to figure something out. We knew we had like that. It couldn't go on forever. Um, and and that, I think, was probably the only concrete idea that that we had. we could agree upon at that point in our lives was like, we want this to work, but it will not go on forever this way. So we need to make some decisions. Did you have a party when you got married? Uh, We did. So we had a beautiful wedding in London. We got married in a library in the (laughs) city center. Um, Very appropriate that you met in grad school. (laughs) I know. Yes. And we're both very bookish. Um, And then we had a party at this beautiful pub in North London. Did you play this song? We probably did. Um, (laughs) But we definitely played single ladies. I know that because all of my friends have this memory of me drunkenly pushing one of our friends out of the way so I could have the dance floor to myself. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we played like lots of songs because again, music really was such a part of of the genesis of our relationship. (laughs) So like all the songs that were big in clubs at the time we were dating were on our wedding playlist so i know that for sure like i know we found love because that was huge when i first moved to london for grad school by rihanna it's funny music is very much i think a part of my relationship with my husband even though funnily enough he probably wouldn't say that he's very musically inclined like that he has sort of a deep love for it but he has introduced me to so many bands and not just like, like he's like very much old school. So like I didn't listen to David Bowie or the Eurythmics or any of that until I met him. Do you feel ready to move to your last song? Yes. 
All right, what do we have? I, I don't know if this will make me cool or not. I feel like my choices are very pop, uh, which is not totally indicative of me. So There's no shame in that, though. <laughs> again, an artist that wouldn't rank high on like who I would say are my favorite musicians, but it is the song for a very specific reason, and it's Make mm -hmm. It Up To You by Julia Michaels. I wish I could be that tender, stable girl that you want, but I'm not. This song was big maybe like a year and a half ago. It wasn't big. I mean, it came out a year and a half ago. But I discovered it then, and it was just when I was starting to go back to therapy. I was at a point in my life when London was starting to really wear me down for lots of different reasons. I was just like not in a good headspace at all. I think I was very angry and really I didn't handle emotion well I didn't articulate myself well to others I started to become very uh like closed off I think I was starting to go back to really bad habits that were really a part of my like closeted life where I disengaged and I was very much a a voyeur and not a participant in my own life. So I, I stopped like seeing friends, you know, my husband was the only one who was like really in the know of stuff. And so when I heard this song, it felt like these lyrics were written by me because I was at a point in my life where I just was not handling anxiety or depression in a healthy way. And I was constantly having to apologize for things or make things up to people. A certain thing that is a part of lots of songs that I like is the beat. And and why lots of, I'm drawn to lots of pop songs is because the lyrics, you know, can be really serious, really sad, but the beat, keeps them happy. So for me, it's like, it, it represents two sort of mindsets that I was in that time in my life. I was trying to maintain my happiness, but I was working through this anger and this, this, um, like, yeah, this trauma that was still hanging with me. And it was strange because, you know, I'm, I was in my late 20s. I was happily married. But there was still this trauma, like, from, like, the that young boy, that closeted me. Mm -hmm. um, and this anger that was kind of underscoring it all. And yeah, like, I think I could admit, like, at times, you know, I, I just wasn't being my best self. I, I could ruin moments. There's a lyric where she says, she sings, I always ruin good things, like that time with your friends, and I'm probably ruining something now, and I can't believe you're staying. I wish I could be that tender, stable girl, that one you want, but I'm not. And I think that was slash is me in a nutshell. I am in a lot better place and have continued to work on myself. But as I was experiencing sort of this... Um, this confrontation with my own mental health, um, again, I think it's something that is such a part of my life. It's this idea of learning language. So I didn't grow up 
I think, with the best representation of how to talk about things. Like I said, when my mom found out about like the gay porn and I just told her the lie she wanted to believe, we didn't talk about it again. So I didn't grow up in a way that I, t- I was taught how to healthily deal with emotions, you know? You know, I'm turning 30 this summer. I'm still <laughs> working on myself. I think I've made great progress. This song to me... It just it reminds me of what this experience of unlearning bad habits and learning healthier coping mechanisms to not be in the pl- in the place that the female protagonist of the song is in to not always have to be making up to someone to not always have to be apologizing. But what I also like about this song is I look at it in a way as an apology like to myself, if that makes sense. Like I'm trying as I reach 30 to make up for hurt that I experience because a lot of the hurt that I experienced when I was younger, I'm not going to get an apology for, you know, I'm not going to get an apology from the shitty things that shitty teenage boys said to me when I was in high school. I'm not going to be able to make up to myself that repression that in a lot of ways was self-inflicted, you know. I can't, but I can continue to work, move forward and learn language. And I can, I, I think right now, like my big mission is using my writing to create these representations of, of the myriad of experiences that queer people, specifically gay men, go through, you know. Not all of the stories are going to be happy, um, but some of them are. And, and I want, I want to make up for things that I didn't have when I was 15 or 16 and I was struggling and I was confused. I want to make up for, for just feeling like the easier route was lying to my mom and blaming it on another friend and saying it was a dare. I want to make up because I want to move on. Like, I want to move on. I don't want to carry that trauma anymore. I want to be freer. I want to be the boy who was dancing with his girlfriends in a double-wide gay nightclub just after dancing with a man, listening to a remix of Beyonce. Like, I want that freedom. And I think... I'm still working on it. I'm still trying to learn to be 100% at peace with who I am. Let's talk about your writing a little bit here. So you were doing playwriting when you were in your undergraduate, and then you're working on a short story collection. Are those the forms you tend to work in? Or? So um, I don't really write plays anymore. And it's funny, okay. when I was in grad school, a lot of the comments I got from my facilitators was uh, where uh, they would tell me, Andres, we really like your writing, but you tend to write in prose. Plays, like they need to be action driven, like stop telling us and start doing. And I really struggled with it because... I didn't like that 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 restrictiveness. I love to write, and I knew that at that point in my life. But I started to feel that theater and plays weren't the medium for me. When I finished my uh, my master's degree, and when my husband and I were doing long distance, I started to write short stories and poems. Um, and I think because I was working full time, and I was and I was teaching creative writing to teenagers. It was just an easier medium to work in. 
But I realized as I started writing it that maybe you know what my playwriting teachers were telling me was true. Like what I was doing was writing in prose. Um, and that's why I studied like an English degree. I also studied a theater degree because I had done theater and I had written a few plays when I was in high school. So I, in my head, like I made the connections that made the most sense to me at the time. So I knew I liked theater and I had theater friends and I wrote some short one acts in high school. So that meant study theater. And then I, I liked my theater degree in my undergrad. So that meant I knew I wanted to do a master's and I knew I liked writing. So duh, do a playwriting degree. So I think like how long it took me to come to understanding with being gay, it probably has taken me as equally, if not longer, a journey to realize the kind of writer I was meant to be. I mean, developing as a writer is a lifelong thing. So you you still have a lot of road ahead of you. Yeah, like we're constantly learning. And I love learning. I hope I never stop trying to, to... to learn new forms of writing and read new types of, of, of authors, like poets, short story writers. The friends that I've made since moving to Scotland have, write in such varying genres and mediums, but it's been just brilliant to, to have that scope, to know that we're allowed to be all those different types of writers and exist within these same spaces. And I, yeah, I constantly, I'm, I'm learning, I'm learning about the different ways you can write short stories. And, you know, I think all is not a loss. Like uh, the kind of theater I loved was really experimental and it's challenged me because in this collection, I'm trying to be a bit more experimental with some of the styles, you know? So like, you know, doing epistolary writing. I even have, uh, I'm working on a short story that's written in Messenger. Oh, wonderful. Because I wanted to write something that spoke to kind of my experience of 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 like coming out and then dating and you know this was sort of just after facebook became a thing and 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 social media started to come up in different ways like twitter and and whatnot and so i wanted to to write this like gay not love story because it's about the end of this relationship but not like a breakup like it's after the relationship but like they're reconnecting but there's still these feelings there. And I and I realized like I want to challenge myself. I want to but I want to write something that many people will understand how to read it. And you know, it's about being modern and contemporary and and the canon, you know, needs to widen itself to to new types of writing and 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 every generation will invent new styles and it's a style that makes sense because most of the world how interacts with people online or through um a smartphone we text each other so why can't we have stories that are written that way in terms of sheer like number of words written people write now so much more than they did 30 years ago because we're constantly messaging and texting each other and that's the primary way who who makes a phone call anymore exactly and like the thing is too like it's just this great almost like renaissance because we but 
in like this extreme, like millions upon millions are becoming Shakespeare's in the sense we are inventing new words, new language. And it all is because of this form that we all write in. You know, we need to get the messages out quicker. So we need to shorten words or like to get to a point that you can have a conversation in emojis. Like, I don't think that's something to scoff at. Like, I think go the human race for continuing to use language in new ways. And as writers, we shouldn't be afraid to incorporate that into our writing. We should celebrate it. Mm -hmm. I agree. Uh, I think it's exciting. The pace of invention that we have now, like I I was, this is so dumb. Just on Twitter yesterday, I can remember someone coined the ridiculous phrase wealth splain. <laughs> but I was like, oh man, splain really is like a suffix now. If like if someone's explaining something in like a way that's condescending, it's sort of like, well, it comes from mansplaining, obviously, but you can you can be like, oh, you're cisplaining to a trans person, or like splain is just a suffix now. <laughs> but like that's so brilliant because when you say it. that, like yeah. I can immediately understand the undertones, the messaging that that person would be saying in response if they're like, oh, thank you for wealth explaining me. And like, exactly. that's like so brilliant about language. It's like what you were saying earlier about like being able to continue to learn as a writer. We're able to continue to learn and invent. And I think as like, as crappy as times as things can be in life in the world and geopolitics, I think there's just lots of brilliant things. Spaces like Twitter can just be like you're speaking in an echo chamber. But then there are things like what you said, like you just happen to see something and you're like, that's brilliant. You know, Mm -hmm. you know, that speaks to something I wasn't able to articulate. But I'm so glad through this medium, I was able to find what this person had invented. Because 20 years ago, had someone, you know, in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, written wealth explain into an essay for a university. It would take years before that word circulated the wider discourse. You know that that word could get incorporated in a in a in a pop culture kind of way. That I like about Twitter. You know, I like that we're able to access these different experiences and these different languages, and people are able to help us get to that understanding quicker. Where can people find your writing if they want to read some? So uh, if you go on my website, which is my first name and my last name, so andresorderica.com, you can follow me on Twitter. So Andres N uh, for Nicholas Orderica. There are links on my website to different anthologies that I am featured in and then to different articles. I do freelance writing for a few magazines here in Scotland every now and then. Yeah. And then Twitter is always like my go-to because I share a lot about different festivals or events that I perform at across Scotland. Yeah. And it's I, it's probably my favorite social medium. Yeah. It, as, as evil as it can be. And boy, I wish the company that ran it was better. It's probably my favorite as well. <laughs> You've been very generous. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Um, No, I think it's a testament to sort of the space that you've created. Oh, gee. Many thanks to Andres for sharing his life and music with us. This is your mixtape is a proud part of the Megaphonic Podcast Network. And now we have a Patreon where you can help support shows like this one. Go to patreon.com slash megaphonic and for as little as $2 a month, you'll be able to hear bonus material and get access to a members-only Slack. 
Today on Slack, for example, we discussed Ovid, Mean Girls, Frankenstein, and live journal drama. There are also cat pictures. We also have a store at megaphonic.fm store. If you like the logos of the shows like this one and think they'd look good on a t-shirt or a coffee mug, well, there you go. You can make that happen. For more information about this episode of This Is Your Mixtape, you can see the show notes at megaphonic.fm slash mixtape slash 34. My name is Michael Collins. I've been your host, and you can find me on Twitter at Earl King, while this show is also on Twitter at This Is Your Mix. You can also email the show at mixtape at megaphonic.fm. I hope you enjoyed today's mix. Onward, brave souls. <laughs>